Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We are back in this great book, the Gospel of Mark, after our summer series on the church, where we looked at what the church is and what we are to be about as a, as a people of God. And I'm so excited to be returning to this great book, to really the point of even going into a gospel in particular is to behold the beauty of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In fact, Mark makes it very clear right off the bat in the opening verse of his gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The whole theme of this book, which is the, God, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the central theme of this book. His person and His work is the good news. Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. In the first eight chapters of Mark, if you remember, really focus our attention on the presentation of Christ. And the latter eight chapters focus our attention on the, on the passion of Christ. The presentation of Christ, the first eight chapters, the passion of Christ, the latter eight chapters. And so all of Mark focuses on Jesus' words and his works. We've seen that. That the focus is Jesus directly, except for the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 30. And I've titled this message, Suffering and Persecution in the Church. Suffering and Persecution in the Church, because that's really the focus here. In fact, the focus also is, the, in particular, the person of John the Baptist. This is the only text in all of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus isn't directly the main point of the passage. But, as we're going to see, the only reason why John the Baptist's life makes any sense and is significant is because of the fact that he is a follower and the forerunner to Christ the Messiah. Now, you need to understand that by now, when we get to Mark chapter 6, verses 14 and following, our Lord has been ministering for about two years. Some say a little bit less, some say a little bit more. His focus has been on preaching the gospel of the kingdom. His focus has been on performing miracles, which really point to his claims as the Son of God and the long-awaited Messiah. But then as we know in the gospels, our Lord doesn't work alone, does he? He himself modeled for us what being a disciple-making disciple is all about. He reproduced himself into a few specially select chosen group of men, his twelve apostles. These men have spent time with Jesus, they have watched Him, they have listened to Him preach, they have seen Him deal with people, they have seen His compassion and His mercy. He's trained these individuals and continues to train them for mission. And so in the previous passage, in verses 7-13 through 13 of Mark 6, what we see is that Jesus sends His apostles on a mini-mission to do exactly what He has been doing to preach the gospel, to perform miracles confirming that the Messiah has arrived on the scene. That's what we see His disciples going out on mission. But what we see here in verses 14 through 30 is that in typical Mark fashion, we have another passage here, verses 14 through 29, that's an example of a, of a Markian sandwich. Somebody has said that Mark loves sandwiches. And what they mean by that is that he, he oftentimes puts in a, a particular narrative or account and sandwiches it in between two other accounts that are of similar nature. And so what we have here is 
um, an account between the sending and the return of his disciples. Another Markan sandwich, if you will. In this case, the, the martyrdom of one of the greatest men to ever live, John the Baptist. Perhaps one of our heroes in Scripture. I know one of mine. The man John the Baptist, of whom Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, that among those born of women, none were greater than John the Baptist. None were greater, said our Lord. And understandably so, when you think about John the Baptist's credentials, at least from a human perspective, but more, important from, more, more importantly, from the divine perspective, he is the cousin of Jesus the Messiah. He was miraculously conceived and born. He's a miracle child of older parents, past childbearing. He is to be a prophet and was a prophet and trained to be a prophet and the forerunner of Christ. He is one of the greatest preachers ever to walk on the face of the planet. I wish I could go. Maybe one day in heaven we'll be able to look back at the types of sermons that John the Baptist preached on video. I think we would be able to do that. I want to see John the Baptist preaching. He's one of the greatest preachers ever. A preacher of repentance for, the, for a prepar- preparing for the Messiah's coming. He's a great man of God. And if you can believe it, he himself had the mind-blowing privilege. Think about this. Of baptizing Jesus, the Son of God. Can you imagine that? Just to be able to put his hands on the God-man. And to baptize him as a confirmation of the fact that he was the Son of God. And yet with all of these credentials, beloved, listen, John the Baptist understood his role in his short public ministry. He was the humblest of men. He knew that he was not the Christ, and he didn't pretend to be the Christ, but did everything possible to de-elevate self and exalt Christ. What was one of John's favorite slogans? He, Christ, must increase, but I must what? Decrease. He was a very humble man, but no pushover with regards to the truth. And here in this passage, we have the opportunity then to see what what happened to this great man of God. What happened to him? And as we walk through this passage, I think one of the things that I want to leave us with is this. We are reminded as Christians from this passage, of the reality of suffering and persecution in the lives of God's people. That if you are a Christian, you have been called to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. I think it's often very easy for us in our comfortable America as Christians, where there isn't explicit persecution, very little opposition it seems, for us to forget about the fact that we need to arm ourselves with the expectation... That opposition, antagonism, suffering for the sake of Christ in this world is to be the norm, will be the norm. We shouldn't be shocked when it happens to us. But many of us live constantly shocked, constantly discouraged, constantly feeling like, wow, why is this happening to me because I follow Jesus? Well, Christ essentially said via his life and his words, if I was persecuted, you will be persecuted as well, right? And so we see that from this particular passage here. Now, as we ponder this together, I want us to look at this account of John's murder in three movements, okay? And I'll give you these movements ahead of time. We want to see in verses 14 through 16, a troubled man. We want to see in verses 17 through 29, a treacherous move. And we want to see in verse 30, a triumphant mission. 
a troubled man, verses 14 through 16, a treacherous move in verses 17 through 29, and a triumphant mission in verse 30. And the whole account begins with, with a troubled man in verses 14 through 16. Specifically, a troubled man by the name of King Herod, whose trouble and anxiety is exacerbated by the fact that he keeps hearing about this Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, as, we, as I just mentioned in the previous passage, has sent his disciples out. They are preaching the gospel that he's been preaching. And now the name of Jesus gains even more popularity. Jesus is now in an, uh, uh, even more influential. And Herod, of course, who loves glory, as we're going to see, who is a proud man, doesn't like that. And his, his trouble and his anxiety is exacerbated by the fact that he keeps hearing about Christ. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Jesus' unprecedented influence and popularity. He heard of it, for his name had become well known. Herod hadn't personally met Jesus Christ yet. He will meet him later in Luke 23 and totally mock our Lord. But Jesus is on the map for Herod. Why? Because there's people, the apostles are preaching him all over the place. And now Herod hears about our Lord. And there were many opinions, of course, flying around about Christ. Verses 14 and 15 articulate some of those. Some people thought that he was John the Baptist who had risen from the dead, if you notice. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. That's one of the popular opinions about Jesus. We'll see in a minute why some are saying this. Others, verse 15, were saying he is Elijah. Elijah. Why Elijah? Because Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says that the prophet Elijah will return before the day of the Lord when God would defeat Israel's enemies and restore them once again to peace and prosperity someday. So people expected Elijah to return. They think maybe Christ is Elijah. Others were saying, verse 15, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Deuteronomy 18.15 speaks of a, of a prophet who, after the likeness of Moses, would one day lead God's people. And so there are all kinds of opinions about Jesus, which tells us that the masses at least consider Jesus to be someone special, someone unique. But Mark wants us to focus our attention from this point forward to what Herod is thinking, and in particular to Herod's trouble to his inner turmoil. Now you need to understand, our Herod in this passage is not Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great, who in Matthew 2 ordered the, the slain or the murder of all male babies two and under? Remember that, Herod? That was Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Our Herod in this particular passage is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great by his fourth wife, a lady by the name of Malphase, who was not a nice lady, by the way. Herod Antipas, our Herod, was tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Tetrarch literally means ruler of a fourth part or a fourth, a re, a fourth region, if you will. In his case, the region east of the Jordan, Galilee and Perea. And tetrarchs were essentially managers of a particular area, specially commissioned by Rome. These tetrarchs were just stewards of Rome's possessions. They didn't own land. They managed it. They, they, they carried out Caesar's, Caesar the emperor's orders on his behalf, did all of his bidding. They oversaw the affairs of Rome in their particular area of rule. That's all they did. Now, even though Herod Antipas, our Herod here, 
was not nearly as wicked as his dad, Herod the Great. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Okay, This Herod was ruthless as his father had been. This Herod was a lover of money, a lover of luxury. He was a lover of pleasure. He was a pitiless man. He had no mercy for anyone around him. And he was a proud man who loved power. In fact, he was so cunning and so malicious that later our Lord Jesus refers to this Herod in Luke 13, 32 as that fox. And it was not as a compliment. It was was meant as an insult referring to Herod's craftiness and great evil and malice. That fox he referred to him as. This particular Herod, Herod Antipas, is troubled. He is in great, great turmoil. Why? Why? Look at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, meaning Jesus' unprecedented popularity and influence, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. He was saying this repeatedly as a sense of this. Mostly to himself, but also, as we see in verse 14, other people shared the same opinion that Herod did. That perhaps John the Baptist had risen. Here is a man deeply anxious, deeply distressed. He's troubled in spirit, restless of conscience. He lives in a state of guilt and deep trouble and turmoil. Mark it. This is what happens to people who have guilt that they've never dealt with before God, right? That's so beautiful, by the way, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? That when we come to put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we are saved, we can be assured that not only has God dealt with the penalty of our sin, but also Jesus has absorbed the guilt of our sin. Hasn't he? What a beautiful thing that is. When you trust Christ, he has forgiven you of your sins, He has paid for the penalty of your sins on the cross. And you can be assured that he has absorbed the guilt of your sin so that now as a believer you can live life every day preaching the gospel to yourself, being reminded again and again of the forgiveness with finality that Christ has accomplished for you. Amen? Well, this man doesn't have that forgiveness. He doesn't have that forgiveness. He's troubled in spirit. He's deeply, deeply restless in conscience. Herod Antipas has no peace. And now in verses 17 through 28, we get a a historical flashback that explains why Herod is in such deep turmoil. I want you to notice this. We move in our passage from a troubled man to a treacherous move in verses 17 through 28. And I want to give you a warning alert, okay? Sometimes you get those warning alerts "Eh, eh, eh, eh," on your iPhones, right? Warning alert, something has happened. I want to give you a warning alert right now, okay? Because what we're about to see in verses 17 through 28 feels like a horrible, hideous soap opera. Now, let me ask you guys. How many of you, back in the day, enjoyed a good old soap opera? How many of you? Come on now. Many of you are lying right now. Wow. Maybe as the sermon continues, you become more convicted about withholding the truth, right? <laughs> now, personal confession time. Back in high school, I remember having a part-time job, and I wasn't taking any summer classes or anything like that. I had more time on my hands than I should have, okay? And so, I was viciously hooked by one of these soap operas. And maybe you remember the soap opera days of our lives? <sighs> Man. It's humbling, okay? 
days of our lives, remember? The sound of a clock ticking in the background. Dun, 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 right? Then the hourglass imagery. And then the slogan, remember? As sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Come on now. You guys, some of you watch that, okay? Don't lie. You know what? Some of you guys were probably watching General Hospital. That's what it is. Or the young and the restless, okay? Listen, some of you Hispanics, Mexican novelas, right? Come on now. I know shameful that I did that one summer, spent too much time doing that, but soap operas, whether you watch them or you didn't, you know they're a mess, aren't they? They're scandalous. They're shameful. Well, listen to me. Verses 17 through 28. Here's a first century Jewish novella or soap opera, okay? That's what you have here. A treacherous, of the most treacherous kind, hideous kind. Doesn't get any more treacherous than this. Now, the first thing that we see here is the cause of treachery. The cause of treachery. Verse 17. Notice what it says. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Right off the bat, we're told of the initial cause, at least on the human level, for John's imprisonment was his speaking out against the unlawful, illegitimate, and incestuous marriage of this man, Herod. What did he do? Notice how explicit Mark is. He says, he had um, married the wife of his brother, Philip. He married her. He was in an adulterous affair. But it gets even more hideous. When you you start contemplating who Herodias is. You see, Herodias is Herod's sister-in-law, wife of his brother, Philip. But she's also the daughter of Herod's other brother, Thus, she is his niece. So he's adulterous. He's an incest. He's in an immoral relationship. I mean, this guy's a sicko with no moral standards whatsoever. And so here's how the soap opera unfolds. Ready? At some point, Herod took a trip to go visit his bro, Philip. Fell in love with Herodias. Seduced her. And persuaded her to leave his own brother, essentially destroying his own brother's marriage and family. And who knows what other damage he caused. This man was ruthless, as extra biblical history tells us. And then he was not done. He also ends up divorcing his own wife. He destroys his own marriage and his own family. I mean, he is a lustful, heartless man who was in the midst of a, of a mess. And he's comfortable in that, all if it weren't for John the Baptist. Because what does John think about this? Well, John's a righteous and holy man. He's a preacher of righteousness, and he holds nothing back. Look at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And the sense here is that John was repeatedly rebuking Herod to his face. Any opportunity that he had, he would confront Herod on his sin. Fearlessly. With all boldness. John was telling Herod he was in sin. I mean, this is, this is Herod Antipas. Tetrarch under Rome. He could crush John any time. And yet John was confronting him on the lawlessness of his sin. You're committing adultery. That is not your wife. 
You're destroying people around you, your brother's family, your own family. Listen, you don't do this type of a thing unless you are a man of conviction, right? Unless you are a person who is filled with beliefs that you're willing to pay the price for no matter what the cost. I mean, for John the Baptist, it didn't matter who the person that he was confronted was. In this case, Herod Antipas. The circumstances didn't matter. The price didn't matter. And that's what people, that's what Christians who believe in Jesus Christ and who are loyal to Christ are all about. We are people who are to be striving for cultivating biblical convictions, right? So that we are bold and courageous with the gospel. Oh, beloved, as you experience persecution and opposition and antagonism for your faith in Jesus Christ, listen, if you really, really hold the gospel of Jesus Christ as your conviction, it's not going to matter who opposes you. It's not going to matter what the price is or the cost will be for making a stand for Christ. It's not going to matter what kinds of circumstances, uh, how circumstances might change. You will be gracious, but you will be bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? what we see here with John the Baptist. He was a man of conviction because you don't stand up to a ruler like this who was so ruthless unless you really believed from the heart that you were the forerunner to the Messiah who was going to the cross to save people from their sins. He was a man of conviction. And of course, Herodias hated John because of this. It's been about a year now that John the Baptist has been imprisoned by Herod Uh, Antipas. And Herodias has been stewing all of this time, holding a grudge. Look at verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him, against John the Baptist. She was stewing on his confrontation of her husband, illegitimate husband, and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. Why? Because Herod was conflicted. He was conflicted. Look at verse 20. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to John the Baptist. See, even the most wicked, hypocritical people can enjoy listening to the truth, all the while not giving up their sin, right? How many people have we met like that? Listen, this happens with church attenders. People who love to come and hear a good sermon, but don't respond to the call to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus Christ. This happens to people who come in and hear sermon after sermon, exposure after exposure to the Scriptures, and don't respond in loving obedience, grateful obedience to the truth. It's so easy, isn't it? For us to come in and out of church and fall in love with the facts about Jesus, but not love Jesus himself. It's so easy for us to to love good information, more knowledge. I want to have the inside scoop on the knowledge of these Bible verses and this theology here, and yet not have a love for Christ. Not submit one's life to Christ. You can say that about Herod. He wasn't about giving up his sin. He wasn't about following the Messiah. Look at verse 20. It says that Herod was very perplexed. Very perplexed. As he keeps hearing John the Baptist 
um, uh, expound on, on Scripture and exhort him and all of that. He's wrestling with the moral dilemma of his adultery, and yet the truth he hears from John, he respects John, he can't accuse him of bad character, but listen, he doesn't want to give up his sin, and yet he keeps John safe. Why? Because he wants to save face with the people who believe John the Baptist to be someone great. And so the cause, the cause of treachery here is John's commitment to the truth, to confronting um, Herod on his sin. Now, what's the circumstance that brings about such treachery? What's the circumstance? How is this murder going to go down if Herod is trying to protect John the Baptist? Look at our text in verse 21. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Oh, birthdays were a big deal in pagan cultures, especially royal birthday parties. In this case, for Herod Antipas. See, Herodias, the adulterous woman, knows Herod's weakness, doesn't she? That not only is he an adulterer, but he's a man full of pride, who wants to save face with the right kinds of people. So all you need is a special circumstance, the special occasion, the special context. In this case, a party where all of the upper class are there, the prestigious show up, the most powerful, the most influential under Herod. Everyone who Herod wants to please is there. The context for treachery is in place. The time for The time is ripe for trouble, isn't it? Enter our next important character, Herodias' daughter. Herodias' daughter. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that her name was Salome. Salome. Salome is a young teenage girl, somewhere between the ages of 14 to 16 years old, of marriageable age. And notice, she seizes upon the moment, doesn't she? Verse 22. And when the daughter of Herodias, Salome, herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. You think her mama put her up to this? I think so. The text doesn't say, but I think she did. So picture this. She enters the the court, most likely all males by what verse 21 tells us. Most likely, mostly males at least. Already people are getting drunk, The noise level is already high. Things are already becoming a mess, a drunken party. And then Salome proceeds to do a solo dance in the likeness of an exotic dancer, a shameless stripper. A young lady doing this. She dances seductively. She dances in a suggestive manner, enticing the men who are there. And you can imagine the noise level rises. Crude comments are flying all over the place. Men are flaming with lust. Things are even getting more and more and more progressively out of hand and loud. What Salome does here, by the way, is very consistent with her character, according to Josephus, who tells us that Salome was really bad news that she ended up marrying her own dad's brother later on and mother's uncle, furthering the history of incest within the family. This is a shameless act. What Salome does here, by the way, was not common in royal courts of this nature. 
There was a certain etiquette and code of conduct. But so wicked and so shameless and so hideous is Herod that anything goes at his parties. Anything. Including what this young lady does. Now by this time, Herod is probably very drunk himself. We see this by his exaggerated and impulsive response. Notice verse 22 with me. And the king said to the girl, who, by the way, now is his daughter, illegitimate, but this is his daughter, right? He's now married to Herodias. But he says to her in verse 22, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Verse 23, And he swore to her, that's a no-no for a king, isn't it? Whatever you ask of me, notice verse 22, whatever you want, I will give to you. Verse 23, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. What a fool. His words are neither measured nor realistic. You know why? For one thing, he didn't own any part of that kingdom. He was simply a manager of Rome's property. Caesar's affairs did his bidding for him. He had no rights to even an inch of land that belonged to Rome. He had no rights to promises. This king is a fool. A man-fearer with no backbone of his own. Please note, Herod is completely the opposite of John the Baptist, isn't he? Completely the opposite. Herod was a man with a royal title... But no convictions, no backbone, no character. What about John the Baptist? A God-centered man with deep God-centered convictions knew what his mission was. He was resolute on that mission to elevate Christ, to point people to Christ. He had a Christ-like character because he loved Christ. He understood the law of God. He was a law-abiding man. And the lesson for us, beloved, is you can have possessions, prestige, pleasure, popularity, but if you don't have Christ, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. Jesus later asks in Mark 8, what will it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It doesn't matter if you don't have Christ. John the Baptist loved Christ. Oh, having stuck his foot in his mouth, he's hopelessly hooked, isn't he? And the wicked women go in for the kill. Look at verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? How fast do you think she answered? She's been stewing on this for a long time, right? When am I going to get an opportunity to kill this man that keeps opposing me and my lover? Quick answer. She said, the head of John the Baptist. The head of John the Baptist. She had long awaited this, envisioned it, and her hateful grudge, mark it, was so great against John the Baptist that she wanted his death as gruesome and as demented as possible. She wanted death by beheading to make doubly sure that this time he was truly dead. Like mother, like daughter. Look at verse 25. Immediately. She, Salome, came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She was repeatedly requesting this. Hendrickson, William Hendrickson comments this, that Herod could have denied her request by virtue of the fact that he had offered her 
property, gifts. He had not given her permission to ask for the or demand for the execution of somebody. But notice verse 26, although the king was very sorry, obviously not sorry enough, proof that there's a type of sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance, right? Yet because of his oaths, verse 26, and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. See, Herod's a proud man. He wants to save face. He's a man-fearer. Kind of reminds us of of Pilate who's going to do the same with our Lord Jesus Christ later on, right? Man-fearer. He's more concerned about what people think about him, pleasing the crowds so that he preserves his position. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison. What's interesting about this is that most believe John had been exiled and imprisoned at a place called Machiris, which was about 80 miles or so from Herod's headquarters at a place called Tiberias. And so it's very likely that either this party held was held at that location, Machiris, or John was already, had already been conveniently brought to that same location at Tiberias. We don't know. But verse 28, notice, they brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Must have been a bloody gift, right? Bloody gift. How treacherous. How horrifying. Listen, Herod's sins of sexual lust, boastful pride, man-pleasing, had such a grip on him that he was willing to murder John the Baptist, a righteous man, rather than turn from his sin. J.C. Ryle comments this, quote, We see how far people may go in religion and yet miss salvation by yielding to one master sin. King Herod went further than many. He feared John. He knew him to be a righteous and holy man. He even enjoyed listening to him. But there was one thing Herod would not do. He would not cease from adultery. He would not give up Herodias. And so he ruined his soul forever. Let us take warning from Herod's case. Let us keep back nothing, cling to no favorite vice, spare nothing that stands between us and salvation. Let us look within and make sure that there's no darling lust or pet transgression which Herodias-like is murdering our souls, end quote. Look at verse 29. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in the tomb. So many parallels exist as a side note between John's death and that of Jesus. Here, like Joseph of Arimathea will do later with Jesus, John's followers perform a noble act with the body of John the Baptist. Like Jesus, John is executed by a secular ruler. Like Pilate, Herod caved in to the pressure of the crowds. And lastly, like the chief priests do with Jesus, Herodias schemed and manipulated to bring about the unjust martyrdom of John the Baptist. So many similarities. Well, we moved from a troubled man to a treacherous move, finally to a triumphant mission. A triumphant mission. Listen, if we don't ponder this, 
as much of our own suffering and opposition and the difficulties that we experience for the sake of the gospel, if we don't ponder this from the perspective of God and his plans here on this earth, but in a man-centered way, we could be left hopeless when we read accounts like these, right? I mean, John the Baptist, one of the greatest preachers. Oh, no! We're losing the war. We're losing this thing. But please notice how Mark bookends this in verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus. That is, they returned from their mini mission and they reported to Jesus all that they had done and taught. Mark moves us from a historical flashback recounting the events leading to John's murder back to the return of our Lord's disciples from their triumphant mission. And I ask you a question, why? Why does, why does Mark sandwich in this terrible, treacherous account? Why does he, he, he book in that with the sending and the returning of the disciples from their mission? Why does he do that? Is it just a coincidence that he sandwiches this account of John's martyrdom? Is it just a coincidence? And the answer, of course, is no, right? This is not a coincidence. I think we learned three primary lessons from this amazing account that is sandwiched between the sending and the return of the disciples. For one thing, listen, we are encouraged about the unstoppable nature of Christ's kingdom, beloved. We are encouraged about the unstoppable, enduring nature of Christ's kingdom. That no matter what the opposition may be here on this earth, even martyrdom, even beheading of one of the great characters in Scripture, the kingdom of God continues to advance, not despite persecution, listen, but because of it, all according to God's design. God wasn't asleep when this happened. He is sovereign over all things, right? Sovereign. Later on, we're going to see in Acts, as the church is birthed and it begins to grow in Acts 7 and 8, that because of Stephen's martyrdom, the church explodes beyond Jerusalem to other regions of Palestine. Why? Because of the fact that Stephen gave his life for the sake of Christ, a persecution arose. And the church grows and expands See, the disciples are sent on a mission. Then John is martyred, tells us Mark. But then Mark says the disciples return from their mission. Verse 14 tells us that even Herod was hearing about the name of Christ because the disciples had been faithful to proclaiming and exalting Jesus through their preaching, right? And their powerful miracles. The mission continues. Martyrdom and mission go together, don't they? Have you read church history? Whenever there, are, there, is, there is persecution of God's people, whenever people die, Christians die for the sake of Christ, martyrdom doesn't quench or hinder the advance of the gospel of Christ's kingdom. The blood of the martyr, says someone, is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And even here, Think about our narrative now as we move forward in our study of Mark. We're going to see that even after John's martyrdom, Jesus continues to preach. His disciples continue to preach. More people come to know Christ. Jesus sets his sights on Calvary to die in the place of sinners, to pay for our sins. God's mission, beloved, is enduring. It is unstoppable in the face of opposition. Think about that. 
I'm so comforted by that. In the midst of so much that is going on in our country and in our world, do you understand that Christ is returning? He's going to deliver the final death blow. He will be victorious. And we will reign with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. I pray that that encourages you and comforts you. Two, I also think that Mark includes this historical account to remind us about the reality of suffering and persecution, as I said at the beginning. Again, so often we think in our comfort-driven America that, you know what, why am I suffering? Why am I experiencing difficulties for the sake of Christ? We're almost shocked. We're surprised that we're experiencing opposition for Christ's sake. But listen to Philippians 1.29. For to you, Christian... It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but listen, also to suffer for His sake. Not all, not all suffering is for Christ's sake. If you're suffering for the sake of your sin, or because you're living a double life, or because you broke the law, that's not suffering for Christ's sake. But if you're suffering because you're making a stand for Christ, because you're sharing about Jesus, trying to call people to recognize that their need for Christ, and they're opposed to that, and they're indifferent to you. And listen, God is glorified in that. That's part of His design. That is part of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He experienced suffer, uh, rejection and hostility and indifference. And we, by virtue of our union with Christ, that we are in Him, we now adopt the same mentality, that we are going to be treated with indifference and hostility. Second Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. And in Mark 8.34, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, want to follow me? Here it is. Ready? You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's not a very seeker-friendly message, right? Count the cost. Count the cost. People understood what it meant to take up your cross. It could mean death. It was public shame. It says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Listen, beloved, not only does John's death here prefigure Christ's death soon to come in the Gospel of Mark that we're going to see Jesus' passion, but John's death also anticipates ours who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Our death. For some Christians in the history of the church, this death has literally meant physical martyrdom at a particular historical moment. Just read Voice of the Martyrs. I spent time this week reading about all the atrocities all over our world that will never come out on the public news. CNN won't put those on, on there. Why? It's not important to them. Even if they knew them. Atrocities all over the world. For some Christians, this death means literal physical martyrdom. But listen to me, for all of us who are Christians, who profess, confess Jesus as Lord, we are called to daily die to ourselves for the sake of Christ. Do you understand that? You die to yourself every single day when you are at a job where you are treated unjustly because they know that you are a Christian, because they know that you are about following Jesus Christ, because they are opposed to you, 
And they look down on you and they speak to you condescendingly and treat you that way. You die for the sake of Christ there. You die for the sake of Christ when you speak the truth in love to difficult extended family members who will not follow Jesus Christ. No matter what you tell them, no matter how much you love them, no matter how much, how kind you are to them. You die to Christ when you experience that indifference from family members. You suffer well and die to yourself when treated with indifference for your faith in various contexts in life. Every single day we're dying to ourselves, beloved. We are in union with Christ, experiencing the sufferings of Christ. The rejection that He experienced is the rejection that we feel as followers of our Lord. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, and he said this when he wasn't physically dead yet, okay? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but listen, Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul viewed his life as a follower of Christ, as dying to himself daily. That life wasn't about him anymore, about his priorities, his pursuits, his career, his possessions, all of those things. He lived for God's eternal kingdom. Suffering and persecution in, in this life reminds us that we need to live for a, the world that is to come, right? Set your mind on the things above, Paul says in Colossians 3.1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on the things that are on earth. Suffering, persecution, opposition, indifference has a way of making us needy before God and longing for Christ to return. Amen? I'm there. I know you are there. Thirdly and finally, I would say that Mark includes this account, listen, to enlighten us about our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. We dissected the shameless scene at Herod's royal court and the evil that led to John's horrifying murder, didn't we? And some of us may be tempted to think, you know, such wickedness, wow, I can't believe it. Does that kind of stuff exist anymore? And of course, we know better, right? Of course it does. Just turn on the news. Wickedness is all over the place. The wickedness of Herod and the others in this account is not unlike the wickedness, beloved, that we see all over the world, right? All over the world. And we must never fool ourselves, listen to me, into thinking that we are any better. We are not better than the sinners in this particular account. Listen, the capacity of our sinful hearts to sin and the atrocities that surround the murder of John the Baptist are such that any of us are capable of committing these kinds of sins. Any of us, left to ourselves, were it not for the grace of God, can do this kind of stuff in our day and age as well. That's how sinful and wicked each of us are. The atrocities of Adolf Hitler. Oh, that guy was an evil guy. Don't compare me to him. Listen to me. We are so sinful that any of us have the capacity, given our wicked hearts, to commit atrocities like those of Adolf Hitler, were it not for God's restraining grace. We are a walking time bomb of sinfulness and wretchedness, beloved. Do you understand that? The shootings of Florida, Texas, 
Colorado, all these other places that we keep hearing about, any of us have the capacity to commit those atrocities. Do you understand that? Were it not for God's common grace upon your life and his mercy upon you. We should never look at these accounts or what's going on in our world and think that we are any better. We need Jesus Christ, beloved, because our sin is great. And yet Jesus is a greater savior. Amen. Amen. Jesus is a great savior indeed. And Mark's message is this. Jesus, the God man, is going to the cross in haste immediately to die in the place of sinners and pay for the sins of the world. That is good news, isn't it? That is good news as we read the Gospel of Mark. When we see such treachery and hideousness, Herod, from a human perspective, had the opportunity to turn from his sin and trust in the Messiah. He loved his sin more than Christ. That was his problem. So will you, if you are not a Christian this morning, will you repent of your sins? That's the right response to the good news of a Savior coming to earth, the God-man, to pay for sins, to die in the place of sinners, to take upon Himself the fullness of the wrath that you deserve for your sins, and then rose again from the dead three days later. You know what the right response is? The reasonable response is that you would turn from your sins and put your trust not in yourself, not in your works, not in your religion, not in your church attendance, but in Jesus Christ alone who can deliver you from the penalty of your sin and the power that sin has over your life right now. Turn from your sins is the lesson that cries out to us from this text. If you are not a Christian this morning, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson writes, quote, the lesson is crystal clear. Unless we silence sin, that is by our repentance and trust in Christ, unless we silence sin, sin will silence conscience. Unless we heed God's word, the day may come when we despise God's son and then God will have nothing more to say to us, end quote. Listen, don't be like Herod who kept putting off repentance and lost his soul forever. Herod, uh, Mark is telling us, don't be like that. Come to Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be saved from your sins. That's Mark's message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your design. That as we read amazing accounts like these, Stephen... And many others, James later on. And over the history of your church, martyrdom and opposition and persecution of your people. Thank you that you are a sovereign God who doesn't slumber nor sleep. This is all part of your your design. To get us to focus on a future kingdom that is to come. When your son Jesus returns and delivers the final death blow to his enemies. Oh Lord, help us to long for his return. Help us to be faithful as the disciples here went on mission and returned, no matter what persecution, what things were taking place, they were faithful to proclaiming Christ so that Christ was made known. Lord, help us to be faithful to our mission. Help us to make disciples. Help us to share our faith. Help us to tell people who are hopeless, living in destructive lifestyles, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Help us to long to share with them about the hope of Christ. 
Oh, Lord, someone shared with us at one point. Help us to be willing instruments in the hands of you, the Redeemer, so that we would share our faith and people would come to know your Son as Lord and Savior. Help us to be faithful in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.